welcome to another episode of Two Dedicated Attorneys. My name is Mike Gibb, and I run AccountsRecovery.net, and I'm very excited to be part of this podcast. Our two great experts, Kelly Nepper-Stevens from True Accord and Nicole Strickler from Messer Strickler, are here to offer their perspectives on an important compliance-related topic for the credit and collection industry. The objective is for Kelly and Nicole to work out the often competing considerations of an in-house counsel and an outside defense counsel. Kelly currently serves as the VP of Legal and Compliance at True Accord, and Nicole serves as a partner at Messer Strickler. Kelly, Nicole, great to be working with you again on this podcast. Looking forward to the, today's discussion. Is everybody ready to get started? Yes, we sure are. Awesome. Well, as everybody hopefully in the industry should know by now, unless they're in a cave somewhere, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau released its long-awaited proposed debt collection rule this week. I know a lot of people in the industry, myself included, are still trying to work their way through the 538-page document. Um, but I'm curious if any of you, uh, I guess, Nicole, let's ask, let's ask you first, if you have any initial thoughts on what you've read so far. Well, I think, Mike, that overwhelmingly, this is a very positive development. Um, there is a lot of much-needed clarification um, that I believe that, that these proposed rules provide for debt collectors and the industry that will help us um, as we develop policies and procedures um, to comply with, with the Fair Debt Act. And so I see this overwhelmingly as an exciting and positive um, occurrence. And uh, Kelly, what, what do you think? I agree. I was really pleased when I started reading through everything, especially because the industry provided a significant amount of feedback during the Sabrifa process about a lot of the suggestions in that proposed outline for the rule, including the fact that there was no mention whatsoever of the ability to communicate with consumers using uh, email or text message. And they've responded because there are rules about how to use email and text message in this notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, there was a lot of talk about default date and using default date. That's not in this notice of proposed rulemaking. So they really heard us out, I think, and considered some of the things that we were saying that were going to make it more confusing for consumers um, and not necessarily beneficial uh, and then really harmful to the industry as well. So um, it was really awesome to see that that happened. But the more I spend time reading the actual um, outline of the rule, which starts on page 447, right? So it's a lot to get through to actually get to the rule. Um, I find that I have more questions uh, for the Bureau about what something means or more concerns about something that they are asking us to do. I think that, I don't know, I, I kind of think that's, that's always natural, though, when whenever you get a you know, proposed rulemaking like this is there's, there's always going to be other questions. And that's why it's really great that we have this opportunity to have, you know, the comment period open up so that, you know, people like us can, can bring those questions to the Bureau's attention before the final rule is implemented. I, I did think though that in the comments, I, I really liked how I felt like they looked at both sides of a lot of the issues you know, for instance, without a stat that um, they, you know, recognize that, you know, various courts have held that it, you know, can be deceptive not to disclose certain, 
you know, statute of limitations issues um, with partial payments and, and tolling and whatnot, but at the same time recognize the difficulty that some collectors have with actually determining the proper statute of limitations, um, particularly in light of choice of law and just unclear state law directives. So I felt I felt like um, the Bureau did a good job of discussing kind of both sides of the coin, so to speak, on a lot of those 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 issues that have come up recently. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. So that 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 brings us to a good point, though, don't you think? Should should debt collectors out there take these rules and you know adjust their practices and their business around them at this point, in that they're just proposed? What do you think, Cal? Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because that is what I wanted to talk about during this podcast. The rule is here; it's out. We can read it. What, if anything, do we do uh, in terms of right now changing our practices to uh, meet the requirements of the rule? Now, let me tell you what you should not do. You should not immediately, in my opinion, of course, um, you should not immediately (laughs) change how you are sending your validation notice and begin to include the large number of um, itemized options that the Bureau is suggesting should be in the validation notice. I would not change the validation notice at all um, until we have a finalized rule. Um, But when you look at some of the rules that just suggest general good practices, such as time, place, and manner restrictions about not contacting a consumer at a location where you know they do not want to communicate with you at, that is something that you should implement in your policies and procedures right away. And a lot of what's in there too is, is stuff that's already in the statute. So, you know, not everything is, is brand new. Um, there is definitely some guidance on some issues that were very unclear in the past, but, you know, like you said, Kelly, you know, there, a lot of, a lot of it also is basic common sense. So, I do think there's some um, good guidance about what, you know, the Bureau is looking towards. And I I do think it's a good idea to start preparing um, as if, you know, when the rule is eventually implemented, this very well could be, you know, what we're required to be doing in the way of, you know, disclosing certain information, Um, you know, particularly with the time bar debt issue. Um, I think that's something that people can look at for, for good guidance, just because it's such a, there's so many differing opinions throughout the circuits about what the required disclosures should be, when they should be given. And there's also a lot of litigation on that topic as well. I see a ton of those claims. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's a good idea to start sending limited content text messages um, before the rule is implemented because you could very well get a court that says that's nice. The CFPB thinks that in their proposed rulemaking, but rules are just proposed. They're not, they're not um, required to be followed right now. They very well could be changed. And you, debt collector, have now violated the act by communicating with a consumer in a way that I don't find to be compliant with the act. So, um those okay. are all important don't, considerations. Don't implement the limited content message yet, um, despite 
happiness about it being there. What about um, the idea that you should, if you are using electronic communication to communicate uh, text messages or emails, what have you, have a way for a customer to opt out or unsubscribe in every communication? So I've always recommended that even in the past with clients. Um, and that, you know what that goes back to is actually can spam. <laughs> so can spam is a, a regulation that we don't typically deal with at, in debt collection because mostly it's dealt with advertisers. But you know, the whole idea behind can spam was to give advertisers a way or uh, consumers a way to opt out of irritating advertising um, when they don't want to receive a, a message. And I actually had a debt collector client that was sued in a small state court was under can spam um, and, and dealt with that issue in that context, which raised my uh, awareness of it, so to speak. So I've, I've always um, advised to have an unsubscribe. I, I, I think that's a, a very easy um, thing to put in you know, your communication, because ultimately if the consumer does not want your communication, they're probably not going to pay anyway. So that's the way I look at it. What do you think though, Kelly? Do you think that inhibits, you know, ultimately recovery on the account? No, I think that's a very good practice because, and I think that most companies who do that uh, sort of, um, extra effort to allow the consumer to communicate ways in which they do not want to be contacted will end up getting more payments, right? So if you have a website where you're interacting with consumers and you have a payment area, you should also have an opt-out tab that allows a consumer to go in and remove their phone number, remove their email, um, tell you how they want to communicate with you, and then you need to abide by that rule. But I think it was um, Tim Collins who told me he did studies on that in his uh, last job. And when he added to the website that stop calling me link so that consumers could remove their phone, payments actually increased. And he thinks it's because, um, you know, it made the consumers think, oh, this must be a legitimate debt collection company because it's, it's complying with the law. It explains to me how, you know, they can interact and how I can remove my number. So making sure that you have those opt-outs are just ways to increase consumer happiness with their interacting with you in a situation where they're not ha traditionally happy, right? Debt collection isn't something that um, most people are happy about. One of the things that you know, I, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was also going to say on, on that whole, you know, stop calling me point. I also found that people that put that on their websites or, or agencies were less likely to get sued when there was a direct communication, uh, a clear direct communication between uh, or method or means between the agency and the consumer where the consumer could go directly to the agency and say, don't contact me in some type of unintrusive way. I find those, those agencies actually get sued less because consumers find a way to, you know, get what they want without having to employ consumer counsel. So I would agree with you on that point. That's, uh, that's great news. Um, and a good, uh, <laughs> sure good takeaway. Um, one of the pieces that I'm, um, kind of puzzling over, uh, a little bit is on page 456 with electronic communications when it's talking about, you know, um, 
the uh, proper policies and procedures that you can have in place um, to use electronic communications, um, mm -hmm. which uh, include um, making sure, right, the reasonable procedures um, for email and text message. So one reasonable procedure for using a number to send a text message or using an email is if the consumer reached out to you on that email or on that number uh, as a way to communicate, then the debt collector can respond to that number or that email unless the communication was don't call me or don't email me at this number, right? Um, or some right. other form of, you know, stop calling me C&D uh, type of communication. Um, another uh, way that the CFPB has written into this rule, a reasonable procedure for identifying an email address or a phone number is um, if you send a communication uh, to the consumer, I guess it's it, it, the rule itself says if the creditor or the debt collector notified the consumer clearly and conspicuously um, 30 days in advance of any other type of communication that you're going to use this email or this phone number to send a text message or an email unless you opt out. And here are the ways that you can opt out. And having that uh, spelled out in that communication. So I think about how, you know, many of the clients that we work for have terms and conditions in their credit card uh, agreements or their other loan agreements and whether or not those agreements are meeting this requirement. Yeah. And obviously those are, that's only applicable for the non-work email because I mean, I always thought this was, um, you know, kind of intuitive, but it seems that the CFPB is very clear that, you know, no work emails are to be used um, for any type of communication, which sometimes can be difficult to determine. If the consumer, say, is self-employed, that may have a little bit of a, a wrinkle there. Um, well, the bonus but, is if they reach out to you from that email and they are not telling you not to communicate with them in that email from their work mm -hmm. email address, then you may use that email address as a way to communicate with them because the consumer provided it to you as the way in which they wanted to communicate by reaching out to you and that using that method. So I was glad that that opportunity was there because, you know, in New York, where you're not allowed to communicate with someone at their work email address, if you receive an email from a consumer and it's clearly at their work email address because it says, you know, uh, you know, Kelly Stevens at trueaccord.com, right? So it's it's clearly their work, their work email. You can't even respond to tell them, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to communicate with you at this at this email, even though it might be that consumer's preference. So it was nice that this this appears here. Um, what I'm wondering about this you know, sort of notification that's supposed to come from either the creditor or the debt collector is uh, whether I should reach out to my clients and say, hey, guys, um, you know, certainly we want to be able to email with your clients because that's uh, a very easy, unintrusive way to communicate with your consumers. I want to make sure you see that this is where the CFPB is heading. Um, and I wanted to make sure that you're you know, terms and conditions, you know, meet these these sort of requirements. Is it too premature to do that? I don't think so. I, I I think, you know, I think it's always a hard sell when, you know, the consumer has consented to something explicitly in a contract. You know, um, 
basically given their consent in some form, it's it's never a bad thing down the line. Even if the it ends up that the proposed rules, you know, are not as forgiving um, in communication styles or there's some type of restrictions, I don't think it hurts to have that language in that um, in that you know user agreement or original creditor agreement. I, I will say though too is um, something we can't forget while we discuss this is that you know these rules are are great um, in that you know they may give uh, be a little less restrictive than say state laws like you mentioned Kelly New York with emails but those more restrictive state laws are still going to be in play for those states. So you know these to the extent that the state has enacted stricter regulations, these will not supplant them. You'll have to comply with the stricter of the regulations, um, i.e. New York in that scenario. But I, that aside, I, I mean, I, I, think, um, I think it merits a, a conversation, you know, really as soon as you'd like to with, with creditor clients on, you know, working towards having the, the underlying credit agreements um, start to comply with these types of directives. All right. So what about the contact restrictions? We know that their proposed limit is uh, you cannot contact a consumer more than seven times within seven consecutive days or within a period of seven days after you have a telephone conversation with the consumer in connection with the collection of the debt the day of the telephone conversation being the first of the seven day period from which you are not permitted to call them back. I have well, a call restriction policy. Should I change it to match this? What are your thoughts? Well, I would say if, if your call restriction policy allows for more contacts than that, then I would say you should at least go down to what the CFPB is recommending here. If, however, your call policy is more restrictive than the CFPB, I would keep it as is until we have a final rule. Because we don't know ultimately what the CFPB is going to uh, approve and, and, and put into effect. And I know that one of the main complaints from consumer advocates is uh, that call restriction or that call limitation um, guidelines. They feel that it's much too many contacts um, you know, in practice. So that could be something that I could see perhaps getting modified um, before the rule is put into effect, just based upon the objections that I've seen. That seems to be one of the highlights from the consumer bar. So that would be my recommendation. Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot because during the town hall, when uh, folks were talking about, okay, so my client has seven debts, you know, under this provision, they can be called 47 or 49, sorry for my bad math, or 49 times per week, um, you know, uh, if they don't pick up the phone and communicate to the debt collection company, you know, don't call me or I can't pay this or whatever, make payment arrangements, right, to stop those additional calls until the next week or whatever. Um, but but uh, there is that you know, if you do have a conversation, uh, then then you can't call back for seven days, which I, I wanted someone to point out. Um, 
you know, because it's, it's hard. We, as a, as a debt collection company, we're, we're trying to reach the consumer to figure out what type of resolution can be made. Right. So, you know, we just need to have that, that conversation. Um, and, and once we have it, you know, you have to wait seven days. So. I think, I think you're right there. There, there is a lot that I think needs to be clarified on that point. Um, my, I had a question that, that came up in my own mind as I, as I reviewed that as well, which is, you know, debt buyers, if they are in some circuits pretty much automatically considered to be debt collectors under the act, if you have a debt buyer that has placed accounts with, you know, multiple different agencies, and if those calls are treated as if they are made essentially by the debt buyer, how does that affect your restriction? And how are you able to communicate that with multiple different agencies if they have multiple different debts with the same consumer? There, just, there are complexities, I think, that will come into play here. I see. That's a very good point, right? So if the <clears throat> debt buyer has two different accounts for one consumer and those two right. accounts are placed with two separate uh, agencies, are, is the debt buyer going to be treated well, but it's per account. I think it's per, I think the rule states that it's per consumer per account. Correct. So I think um, they might be okay there. Um, mm-hmm. But I think you're right. They're going to get a lot of comments from consumer groups about this restriction. And 49 calls sounds like a lot to me. Um, so, and I mean, even the Washington post, uh, most major news outlets were picking this up as the Trump administration, allowing debt collectors to harass consumers. I think that was, uh, the, the, uh, byline of the story. So, um, I think that, uh, as an industry, one of the things that we must do now is support, um, our position and make an effort to write into the agency. The very first page explains how to do it about the things in the rule that are most either troublesome uh, or problematic um, to you uh, so that they understand and, um, you know, will take into consideration our position as well. If they do not hear from us, they will only hear from the alternative voices. So I think we still need to support um, our position about our need to reach out with and con- con- communicate with the consumer um, regarding um, their their debt um, so that uh, they don't just receive uh, comments on the other side. And Kelly, I think that's a great way to, to wrap up our podcast uh, for today is, is that, you know, we, we all need to remember that well, I, I, you know, I think that these rules are, or proposed rules are mostly positive for our industry that, you know, it's, it's not quite over yet. So we need to be, you know, vigilant and in, in continuing to advocate for rules that we find to be reasonable and, and the good and the bad things that, that we see here. And, you know, also read, reach out to the trade industry groups that you're members of, because a lot of them are preparing comments, um, I'm sure all of them are, in fact, um, on these rules. And so that, you know, if you don't necessarily have the wherewithal to submit your own comments, then reach out to them to give them your perspective. And, um, you know, that's what they're there for. 
Absolutely. And I know that they're all going to do an extremely thorough and detailed job on our behalfs, and we'll probably be sending out surveys, participate in those surveys um, in order to get your feedback. But I do think um, that it's important to also take the time to make your own comments. They don't, the industry groups will be thorough for you. If there is something in here that's particularly troublesome for you, it does not hurt to write a one page letter saying, hey, this is going to be a problem for my business and this is why. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, long. It doesn't have to involve a ton of research or data. But when you, if you read through the rule, you'll see that the CFPB is still asking a ton of questions. They've reserved a space in the out-of-stat debt uh, where they might put perhaps language or um, other uh, regulations, which we can see just by the fact that they said reserved. Um, so it's important. And and if, if um you know, definitely take the time uh, to, to write that one page and fire it off and participate in those surveys because it's, it's a big deal. This is going to be, I don't know that they're going to sit down and do a rulemaking again for another, you know, 30 years. So um, we got to, we got to uh, make sure that these rules come out in a fair and balanced manner and that there's something that we can um, adjust to and continue to, to practice in um, so that it's not putting us out of business. Well, I got nothing. Well, look, was it 44 years it's been out so far? It was 1977, so 42 years. Now that's upsetting as I was born in 77. So I was trying to do the math on that. I came up with 30 because probably I think I'm 30 in my mind. 42, you know, 42 years from now is 2061. Yeah. So yeah, who knows what 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 will that collection will look like then? Well, Kelly Nicole, thank you so much for for participating and, and sharing your insights again on this episode of Two Dedicated Attorneys. I'm sure this is a topic we'll be spending a lot of time on in the coming weeks and months as as we delve into the document and start to really kind of understand what the impact is likely to be should the proposed rule continue forward as it's currently drafted. Uh, I look forward to having those conversations and on that topic and other topics with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of two dedicated attorneys. We'll be back soon with another episode. Take care. <laughs>